during this sermon series, Swiping Right, we're rolling out different, um, uh, different ground rules for real romance. And the, the idea here is that we are really a little bit lost culturally when it comes to romance and finding it, establishing it, growing it, and what it even is to be in a romantic relationship. So by the time the, the, the series ends, we will have 10 of these. We're kind of going slowly. I've also extended this series from six weeks to eight. So today's talk isn't, uh, wasn't part of the original plan, but it was a result of some feedback I've gotten. Um, so, uh, so you'll have to be patient with us. If you hated this series, you got two more weeks to deal with than originally planned. So just hang in there. Patience is the virtue. Um, and uh, today's, uh, today's ground rule number six, uh, as you see on the wall, is that profiles are people too. Profiles are people too. We're talking specifically about online dating today. So the question that we're dealing with, we're working with a different question every week through this series, is one that I've been presented many times. Again, I didn't plan to speak on this, but I've heard it enough to want to address it in a sermon. The question is, should Christians date online? I know it sounds obvious to some of you um, that the answer is yes. It may sound obvious to some of you that the answer is no, depending on where you are theologically, right? And I know Christians disagree on this. But there's some factors to consider. It's not a black or white deal, I think. And I think there's some caveats to explore. And so I wanted to do that today. And I wanted to do it in a way that, um, I don't know, was a little bit different. I want to turn the conversation on its head a little bit. And so we're going to talk about online dating specifically, but it's going to take me about 20 minutes to get there. Because in the first part of today's talk, what I want to do is talk specifically about Jesus's interactions with single available women. Because I know uh, Jesus obviously is supposed to be the, the model of our faith. When you want to know how to do something, you're supposed to say, well, what would Jesus do? People that are dating can't really do that. Like, how would Jesus date? Who knows? He wasn't, uh, he wasn't on the dating scene. He didn't swipe either way, right? So it's, it's hard to know how Jesus would date. But it would be silly of us to think that just because Jesus didn't date, then he didn't face the same kinds of temptations and struggles that single people do today. He was single his whole life. He was human. He faced temptations. He wasn't above temptation. He felt tempted. And I think he felt tempted in the same ways that a lot of single people on the dating scene today probably felt tempted. So I think it's worthwhile to look more closely at some of the uh, interactions that Jesus had specifically with single women. So I want to look at three different women that Jesus encountered or interacted with and see how these interactions went differently based on who these women were. These are three totally different women with three different kinds of stories, but the same kinds of women are on the dating scene or in this room right now. And so I don't want to just talk to men about women. I think this also applies to women um, and how women deal with men. But the point is Jesus dealt with single people as a single man, people of the opposite sex all the time. And how he responded to them and dealt with them I think should inform how we respond to each other and deal with each other, especially on the dating scene. Does that make sense? So y'all promise you'll stick with me through the first part of this and we'll get to the fun stuff a little bit later, all right? So I really want to talk for about 15 minutes about Jesus, three, three women that Jesus interacted with, okay? The first woman's name was Mary, and I don't mean his mother. I mean uh, another Mary whose sister was Martha. They were the sisters of Lazarus, and it would appear as though Martha and Mary were both single women. Jesus spent a lot of time with these two single women. And Mary especially seemed to have a special place in her heart for Jesus. She was especially taken 
with Jesus. Every time this Mary, who was single and probably young, younger than Jesus more than likely, every time she's in the same room as Jesus, she kind of loses it. And I don't know if she's smitten with him or just really admired him or, or what, but she kind of pushes some boundaries, especially for the culture of her time. Some of the stuff she did with Jesus may not be a big deal today, but in her time, groundbreaking, envelope-pushing stuff that Mary did. For example, the time Jesus visited her house, and he went to the living room, and he sat down, and Mary... Instead of doing what a woman's supposed to do, getting a meal ready, bringing him water, bringing him wine, cleaning the house, other men were coming over as well, and so making sure everything's ready, Mary just sits herself down in front of Jesus, right at his feet, like a disciple would. That was something Jesus' disciples did. Women were supposed to wait on the men, like Martha, Mary's sister. She's running around the house, busying herself with many things. This story is in Luke chapter 10, by the way, verses 38 to 42. And I'm not going to read it to you. I'm just going to tell you what happens is Martha comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, do something about my sister Mary. She's being lazy. She's not playing her part. She should be helping me instead of sitting here in front of you alone. And so Jesus says, I will, not, I will not make her get up from here. She has chosen the better part. And he, he implies to Martha, you're welcome to come and join us if you'd like to, but, but I'm not going to tell Mary to, to move from her position of disciple. There's another time that um, Jesus is at, um, at Mary and Martha's house. And this time he's the guest of honor at a dinner. And they have prepared the feast and everything they're eating and everybody's having a good time. And then Mary just completely loses it. I don't know what's going on with Mary in this story. This is in John chapter 8, I believe. And uh, Mary, man, she just, uh, she just kind of freaks out. And she comes to Jesus with a jar of perfume. And she gets on her knees right in front of Jesus in the middle of dinner. And she starts bathing his feet in perfume and drying them with her hair. Now, I'm not saying that Mary is flirting with Jesus in this story. I'm just saying if you ask any man here whether or not that sounds the tiniest bit hot, that a young, available, single woman would bathe your feet with so much perfume that the aroma fills the house, and then she dries them with her hair a little bit. Just a little bit, guys. Don't be... Don't lie, you're in church. If a guy says that's not a little bit, uh, you know, of a arousing, then, then he's a, he's a bold-faced liar. So... Uh, so that kind of, that happens, right? That, that actually happens and, and Jesus has to, has to deal with the, the consequences here and, and has, to, has to protect her, Mary, from the judgment of others. Because other people are saying, whoa, this, uh, women were not allowed to touch men. Much less single woman with a single man in public, you know, perfume and hair. Very intimate. And I'm not trying to over-sexualize Mary's actions. That's not the point. The point is that Jesus could have, and he didn't. Jesus could have, and he didn't. Sometimes we forget that Jesus was a real man, just a man. He was a 30-something-year-old single virgin, but he was also an alpha male. He was the man other men followed around. He was a hard-working man with a good job. He probably was muscled up from all the wooden cement he carried around all the time and the stones. And, and he, was, he was from a good family. He was charismatic. People wanted to be around him. You don't think he had his choice of women throughout his adulthood, throughout his life? Of course he did. 
And in this case, with Mary fawning over him, uh, again, I'm not saying she's flirting, but it's very intimate what she's doing with the hair and the perfume and all of this. He could have over-sexualized her and interpreted those actions as something that they may not have been. Or even if she was making advances, you know, in, in that world, like in that line of thinking, he didn't seize that opportunity. You see... Jesus refuses to see Mary as anything other than a disciple. He treats her exactly like he treated Peter and John and James and the other disciples. She sits at his feet and he teaches her. She pays homage to him. She honors him and he receives it without taking it any other place. That's who Jesus is with Mary. He refuses to, you know, uh, capitalize on her naivete. He refuses to use her even though she was maybe overly, uh, overly eager, and even though the world that they lived in was pretty patriarchal, and if he had taken advantage, if Jesus had told Martha to go run an errand so he can have a moment alone with Mary, you know what I mean, guys? If he had seen an opening and seized the opportunity, no one would have batted an eye. It would not have affected Jesus' reputation. It was just a patriarchal culture. If he had taken her to bed or slept with her or whatever, it would not have affected him, but he treated her with dignity and respect. That's the first woman I wanted us to look at. Hold Mary in your heart. We'll move on to the second woman. The second woman is a little bit of a different story. She is found in Mark chapter 5. And I want you to open your Bibles, your Bible apps, or you can follow along on the screens in this story. Because I'm going to read this one to us because the details really stick out and they really matter. Mark 5, verse 24 to 34. Mark is the second book of the New Testament right behind Matthew. Right before Luke. Mark 5. 24 to 34. So a large crowd followed and pressed around Jesus. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. So she had some kind of a hemorrhaging problem, probably uh, some kind of uh, female health issue that she'd been dealing with for 12 years. And you got to know, according to Old Testament law, whenever somebody's bleeding this way, they are ritually unclean, biblically unclean. They are to be they are to be cut off from the community, literally live outside of the city alone. That's who this woman had been for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors who had spent, and she had spent all that she had. And yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. 12 years. And when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd, fighting her way through the crowd, making everyone else in the crowd ritually unclean as well and in need of purification according to the Old Testament laws, breaking every law that she can, risking her life. She could be stoned for putting everyone else in that position. And then she goes up behind Jesus and touched his cloak, which makes Jesus unclean. And Jesus is on his way to heal some poor girl who's on her deathbed and to bring her back from the brink of death. And so now he can't even do that according to the letter of the law because he's got to go to the temple and be made clean again because this bleeding woman touched him. That's everything she puts on the line right here. She puts everything on the line and she risks her own life because she thought if I touch his clothes, I will be healed. And then this happens immediately. Her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once Jesus realized that some power had gone out from him. He knew something happened. And he turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? The disciples said, look at this crowd pressing in on you. How could you possibly say who touched your clothes? Who hasn't touched you today, Jesus, is, is what they're really saying. And then Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear told Jesus the whole truth. 
He tells him her whole story, especially those last 12 years, everything she has been through, where she lives, what her life is like now, how no one has touched her for 12 years, and she has no family, nobody in her corner. Everyone in her life has swiped left on her. No one will have her. Everyone has disposed of her. No one can see her. And Jesus saw her. And Jesus restored her. And Jesus redeemed her. He called her daughter. He says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Jesus saw this woman like no one else had seen her for 12 years. He gave her the validation that no one else would give her. That's the second woman. The third woman I want us to think about is a story from John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. And I'll tell you this story. You can read it when you get home today or sometime this week. John chapter 8. Imagine, if you will, Jesus teaching in the temple. Imagine this is the temple. It's the farthest thing from it. But imagine this little box with metal and glass is the temple. And Jesus is here teaching. Imagine if halfway through his sermon there is a commotion. There is a disruption. And some religious guys, some preachers, bring in this woman. They drag her in by her hair and they bring her before Jesus and they throw him down in front of him and everybody. Imagine that woman is weeping, terrified. Imagine that she is naked. And the religious leaders explain, we just caught this woman in the act of adultery. And no one asks them to explain how they caught her in the act of adultery and why they chose to bring her naked. And where the man is, who was clearly involved in this egregious mistake, uh, they just bring her. Nevertheless, what they're doing is trying to trap Jesus. Because they say to Jesus, you know the law, Rabbi. The law says this woman should die. We should kill her by stoning. They want Jesus to pull the trigger. They want Jesus to give the order to stone this naked, terrified woman in front of everybody. Because if he doesn't, then they can point to Jesus and say he's a heretic, that he's not biblical, he's not a biblical leader. The religious guys, they're trying to purge Jesus so that they can stay in power. Jesus kneels down and he writes in the sand, one of the most mysterious parts of the gospel. Nobody knows what he's writing in the sand or some Hebrew, like tic-tac-toe, Hebrew something, and just like messing around in the sand, but they continue to press him. They just won't stop with their pressure. And then he stands up and he looks at them and he looks at her. And he says, I'll tell you what, whoever in this room has not committed a sin, let him throw the first stone at her. Let him get this started. The one that is without sin. It's the ultimate religious burn. It's a classic, just a wonderful, awesome, awesome, awesome line that Jesus was so sharp to come up with that on the fly. I always think of that stuff five minutes after the moment, you know, and I'm like, ah, why didn't I think of that? Jesus is like, no, whoever is not sin, throw the first stone. And they drop their stones and they drop their charges and they walk away. And this is where this story gets interesting to me for today's purposes. Because then Jesus is left alone with a naked woman who has a history of promiscuity. This woman has a past. And suddenly this woman owes Jesus. This woman, uh, Jesus just saved her life. Jesus is her knight in shining armor. He's her hero. And they're alone together now. And so Jesus could say anything to her. Jesus could compliment her figure. Jesus could grab her whatever. And Jesus could, could, he could say, you owe me now. You know, what about it? I mean, this is the stuff that happens in the real world. It happened then. It happens now. 
This woman is vulnerable. She has no one, and she is literally naked before Jesus, and they are alone, but he looks her in the eye. I'm not sure how many of us men would look her in the eyes, but he looks her in the eyes, and he says, where is everybody? Has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, sir. And he says, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Three, amen, three stories of three women, different stories, different kinds of women, different pasts, but Jesus treats them all with the same level of dignity, respect, and honor. Now, I know that many of you are not familiar with this alternate universe that we call online dating. And if you're not, then God bless you. You are so fortunate. And I'm not asking you to go and familiarize yourself with the apps and sites that I will be talking about for the rest of our time today. But many of you are familiar with this alternate universe where everything is superficial, everything is hypersexual, and everyone seems judgmental on the surface. In that world that I'm talking about, a woman like Mary, woman number one that we talked about today, a woman who was overly eager, overly anxious to be accepted, validated, loved, overly anxious for attention, that woman would have a target on her in the eyes of most men in the world we're talking about today. In that world, most men see a woman like the one who was sick for 12 years, the one who had no one in her corner, the one nobody wanted, and they would dispose of her. They would swipe left so fast, they would treat her like trash, or maybe they would use her because she was so easy to get, and then they would be done with her. In that world we're talking about today, most men see a broken, half-naked woman with a promiscuous past and they would see an opportunity. And I don't mean a gospel opportunity. I mean an opportunity, an opening, an end to take advantage of her. Personally, before this series, I was clueless about this alternate universe. It was the biggest surprise of this whole preparation process for this dating series was learning all the ins and outs of the online dating world. And in case you're curious, I did not create any profiles myself and explore the online dating world. I read books. I read Elite Daily and I talked to single people in our um, congregation. And I learned so much. You know, I learned so much about this world. And what was interesting is how some of the things that we think are new and unique to the online dating experience really aren't new at all, like um, phenomena like ghosting. Who's heard of ghosting? Anyone here been ghosted? Nobody wants to admit it. Some of y'all have, some of you have ghosted somebody else. Ghosting is what happens when somebody who showed a lot of interest in you suddenly disappears. They drop off the face of the earth. They ignore you on Tinder. They block you on Twitter. They pretend like they don't get your messages and Ghosting is not new. Ghosting's been around a long time. It's just back before the internet, you ghosted by just saying to your wife or girlfriend, I'm going out for some smokes. And then you would just go start a new life somewhere else. Nobody could track you down. There was no internet. And now there's internet. So ghosting just means pretending like you're not seeing those texts. And, and it's happening now. It happened then. It's human nature. Now, the oldest trick in the online dating book is uh, catfishing, which is the, what happens when somebody creates a profile with a picture that's clearly not them. It's, 
it's a little too good to be true. If you run into Matthew McConaughey on, you know, Hinge, uh, chances are it's not him. I think he's spoken for and probably doesn't need Hinge even if he wasn't spoken for. <laughs> That's not to say any of you guys are less than Matthew McConaughey. I'm just saying. Uh, anyway, I'll stop talking. So the little cousin of catfishing is kitten fishing where somebody posts a younger picture like 10, 20 years ago of themselves to make them look a little more appealing. Uh, a favorite of many cowards on the dating scene today is, uh, is called benching. Benching is when you keep someone at arm's length. So you make them feel just like they're interesting enough to you that, that you're uh, in with them, but you just kind of want to keep them close. In case your starting lineup doesn't work out for you, you can get somebody from your bench and get them in the game at a moment's notice. That's the idea of benching, and this happens all the time. Girls were telling me, and guys too, like I know when I'm talking to guys online, they're talking to six or seven others. They're building their roster, and I'm just one part of it. You know how that feels? Anyway, uh, I can't even get into it. it. It upsets me as a father of a daughter. <laughs> it really upsets me. Um, benching. Breadcrumbing is another thing that people are doing. Uh, you can look that up online if you want to. Just be careful. Slow fading, zombieing. Draking. Draking was my favorite thing people are doing online dating right now. Draking is when the guy says all the right things, like you're the best I ever had, baby. But then somehow you do some digging, you discover that he's told half of Houston that they're the best he's ever had also. And so he's not quite the romantic that you thought he was. And you feel just like, you know, just another person in his life or her life, Draking. Now, that's kind of part of the dark side of it, some of the games people are playing. But listen, it's not all bad out there, truly, I, I mean this. I'm not just saying this because people really pressured me to say this. Couples that have met online are tired of explaining how they fell in love on Tinder. And so I don't wanna, I don't wanna compound the taboo factor. It's really not all bad. A lot of people are really meeting and falling in true love and finding true love online. I don't know if y'all know kind of the stats around this, but between 05 and 2012, 35% of couples that got married met online. 35%. And I'm sure that number has gone up in the last five years, and it's just going to continue to go up. This is how people are meeting now, and sometimes it really works. I've done 16 weddings this year. I've officiated 16 weddings. Nine of those couples met online. Three on Tinder, three on Bumble. So Tinder and Bumble, y'all, I'm just telling you, that's the front runners. Temple, I'm sorry. I, ah, I should apologize to match. Tinder and match have three each. Bumble has two. And coffee meets bagel. Got one, got one. Coffee meets bagel in the mix. Still looking for my first, uh, you know, hinge hookup date, whatever thing. Uh, if, you're, if you're a hinge person, uh, a couple, uh, find me before you get married. I want to do your wedding so I can put you in my list. Um, and if y'all could just please forget that I just said I'm still looking for my first hinge hookup. I would appreciate it. So let's just, let's delete that from the recording uh, before it goes live online. Okay. So unfortunately, we're live streaming now, so it's out there. <laughs> anyway, um, so... Y'all just chalk it up. I'm old. Chalk, chalk it up to my age, okay? So uh, I, I just want to give you a point of reference here. In 1940, the game was totally different. In 1940, your best um, chance for meeting the one was by way of introduction. Your family would know somebody and set you up with somebody in your hometown. And I know the Internet can be a scary place, but is it really that much scarier than your family setting you up with somebody from your hometown? So what I'm saying here is I don't think online dating really uh, in a vacuum like makes things worse. Relative to times past, I think there's plenty of positives that really you could say online dating has made things better for single people. There's more options. There's more freedom. 
You're a little more in control of your destiny. That's especially good for women relative to times past. Two centuries ago, women were bought and sold, traded like chattel on the open market by men, right? You, you got to say, I know Tinder's rough, but it's better than being bought and sold like chattel on the open market two centuries ago. I think online dating is even better than what we had two decades ago where you took out uh, anybody uh, over 40 ever take out a newspaper classified ad? Come on, confess. All right. If you haven't seen those, y'all are lying, first of all. And it's fantastic, the stuff people used to write in those online newspaper, or, uh, newspaper ads uh, in, the, in the paper. Y'all know what newspaper is? Uh, newspapers? Anybody? Okay. So <laughs> even better than newspaper ads were these video ads that I came across. Um, and some of them are online. I wanted to show you some of the video ads that men posted. Let's watch a couple minutes of video ads people posted. Are you looking for Okay, early to bed, early to rise makes a woman healthy, wealthy, and wise. That's why you're wiser than me. It's Stephen. Hi, I'm Maurice. I'm an executive by day and a wild man by night. Hi, my name's Monroe. Uh, you've probably already noticed that I have incredibly blue eyes. Hi, my name is Phil. Uh, most of my friends call me Big Phil. Okay, um, I like to talk to people uh, deep into the night. I play guitar. I'm Aton. Hi, I'm Fred. Hi, my name's Mike, and if you're sitting there watching this tape smoking your cigarette, well, hit the fast-forward button, because I don't smoke and I don't like people who do smoke. I'm not afraid to get sand on my tuxedo if you're not afraid to let the wind mess your hair up a little bit when I take the top down. Perhaps even a, a nice bath with some champagne and candles. Hi, Mom. <laughs> um, I do fashion photography, and I do consider myself a refined valley dude. Okay, I'm looking for a trendy girl with a simple smile. Wait, it says here, oh, excuse me. I don't know, what I'm not looking for is uh, some big overgrown monster that's always thinking about food and... Whoso binds to himself a joy, doth its winged life destroy. Um, I like to uh, do a lot of sailing. I like to outdoor activities. I like climbing. I like travel. I took a sponge ball and <clears throat> was pulling him out of a little girl's ear. Vivacious, foxy. I'm looking for the goddess. Are you the goddess? Who is the goddess? The goddess is the woman, is a woman, is any woman, is all women. All right, I got to cut it off right there. Oh my gosh. Can we all agree that online dating is better than that? All right, so we're making progress as a people. Things are moving forward. We're not without our issues, but oh my, uh, things were cheesy in 1990, apparently. So I wasn't alive yet, but uh, anyway, um, that's a lie. So uh, I really, um, I wrestled with the question today, uh, today's question a lot about um, should Christians be dating online? Just looking for a way of answering it simply. And I, I gotta say, I couldn't find just a blanket answer um, for why Christians shouldn't be dating online. I think uh, there's no reason why Christians shouldn't be engaging in general um, with uh, online dating. Single Christians, let me qualify that. That is the one <laughs> clarification or caveat. Actually, there's another caveat because um, it really should come down uh, to a question of character and where you're at and the health of your soul. Because um, if you can't Go to these apps and platforms and websites 
um, without being influenced and drawn in and fundamentally changed, if your principles aren't strong enough, your relationship with Jesus isn't strong enough to take Jesus with you to those apps, sites, and platforms, then I'm going to say that it's not time for you, probably, to be engaging in that world. It's too overwhelming. There's too much temptation. And sometimes it's better to take a step back and get yourself right with Jesus. And we'll talk about that a little bit, what that looks like, rather than just saying, well, I'm not okay with Jesus, but, you know, once I find the one, then we'll get okay with Jesus together. That, that's not how it works. And so you have to be really careful asking yourself, am I a man of integrity? Am I a woman of enough integrity to withstand the temptations I'll inevitably face? on Tinder, Bumble, Hinge, and all the other apps and, and sites. And here's the difference I found as I've talked to couples who have found what they're looking for. So they are very, um, usually very quick. It's like a six months or less on these, on these apps and things. They, they hop on. They know exactly what they're looking for. They're very clear in their profiles. They're very principled. They will not negotiate or compromise their character in Christ just to get attention from somebody else. They don't care if they're not getting as many likes as other people on those apps. What they care more about is quality of likes, quality of attention, quality of people that are reaching out to them. And so they don't compromise who they are or the picture that they take or how much whatever they show on their profile picture. They don't take Jesus out of their profile, um, you know, and they, they're very clear that they're looking for relationship. As opposed to people who really struggle Typically, not everyone does this, but typically people who really struggle are, are more vague and a little more wishy-washy in terms of where they stand and their foundation that they stand on. So um, where those people get in danger, some of y'all are in danger, um, are with some of these downsides of the online dating world. And these are very easy to identify. I'm just going to go through them real quick. The most common downside to the online dating world is this constant temptation to be self-centered in your approach to relationships, self-centered instead of Christ-centered. I don't think we even see it because it's so prolific and pervasive in our culture, especially in the dating world, how self-centered we're expected to be. Everyone who creates a profile on Bumble or Tinder or Match or anywhere, everyone who creates a profile is looking for the exact same thing, somebody who uh, is right for me. Somebody who makes me happy, somebody who meets my needs, somebody who makes me feel good. A lot of guys talk about, you know, meeting someone who will change for me but doesn't expect me to change. This kind of self-centered approach to dating really spells the end of your relationships or your romantic life before it even gets off the ground. Because how are you supposed to find a match if both of you are thinking, me, 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 all the time? And you're both thinking, well, you know, what does this person do for me? Well, that person's also thinking, what does it do for me? And so when you think about online dating from this vantage point, it really gets murky pretty quick. We're all expected to look out for me. It makes sense to look out for you until you realize that everyone else who has a profile is also looking out for them. They're all looking for someone to make them happy. Just like you're looking for someone to make you happy. So that's where really uh, things get tricky with online dating. It's the basic problem because it's really hard to find love that way. <laughs> Calling two narcissists who happen to find each other attractive a uh, match is like putting uh, Chris Paul and, and James Harden on the same floor and call them a team, you know what I mean? Like, that's not how it, that's not quite how it works. I mean, we're all hopeful, right? We can hold out hope, right, Houston, that we don't have a problem in our backcourt this year. Any Rockets fans in the house? All right. 
That's not how love works, though. Christ-centered dating as opposed to self-centered dating means thinking outside of yourself from the very beginning, even from your profile. You're not online looking for somebody that's your everything, that's going to fulfill you and, and complete you and meet all your needs, meet all your criteria. You're also looking for someone and for the potential in someone that you can help bring out in them. By the power of the Holy Spirit, God can use you to bring someone's best self out of them, to make someone else like Christ. So you're not just looking for someone to take care of you. You're looking for someone to take care of, someone to minister to, someone to pour yourself into, someone to disciple even. And that doesn't mean that you need to start, you know, compromising who you are and just taking on any sad puppy that you come across online. I'm not saying you should compromise who you are or, you know, what, what makes you uh, tick, you know, your values. I'm just saying you date to find someone to nurture and nourish and minister to and not just someone who makes you happy. And I know that approach is different. Um, and that can set you up for some heartache. It can set you up to look like a fool at times because some people will take advantage of that in you. But listen, that's part of it. That's what Jesus shows us this about love. Sometimes love feels like heaven, but a lot of the time it feels like a cross. And bearing that cross of shame and being made to look foolish or people trying to take advantage of you and all that, that's kind of part of the deal when you decide to love like Christ loves you. And when you find the real thing, when you find someone who instead of putting another cross on your back, they help you carry the one you've got, that's when it's all worth it. I think Paul's words apply here from Ephesians 2.3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more important than yourself. The second tricky, sticky part of online dating, the second downside, is what I've called the dehumanizing effect of online dating. I don't know why everyone who's dated online for any length of time starts to feel less human. I just know that it happens. I don't know if it's the swiping of people. Uh, you know, we know that profiles are people too, right? But we're swiping them like they're not. We're just, it kind of feels like you're just throwing people away. And it's easy to start feeling like people are disposable, like people don't really have inherent worth. It's easy to forget that every person is a child of God. Now, that doesn't mean you have to swipe right on everybody because if God loves them, then you have to love them too. I'm just saying check your heart on this. When you're dating online, check your soul, the state of your soul, and make sure you're not just passing judgment on people based on how they look, but you're looking for potential. You're looking beyond the surface. And you're seeing the humanity of every single profile you come across because God treasures every one of them. And profiles are people too. Now, throughout this series, I've been wondering, like, how do you get around this phenomenon of dehumanization? Man, how do we, how do we get through this? Because, you know, over half of people dating online say that all that really matters when they're looking for a match is physical characteristics. And so, of course, we're going to objectify each other in a setting like, how do we get past this? So I thought about creating my own dating app. Y'all tell me if you think this is a good idea. Where instead of posting your uh, shirtless picture guys or your cleavage picture girls or whatever, like people are doing in their profile pictures online, you have to post your favorite baby picture. So that everyone knows that you once were a baby and you had a mama. And, you know, I've also thought about like we're a, a little add-on app where you can superimpose a picture of Jesus standing behind you with a menacing look, like so that people looking at you would know that you belong to Jesus, you know, maybe give him a shotgun or something. I don't know. I'm working. It's, a, it's an idea in progress, but I'm going to go ahead and put a TM on that and say it was my idea. Um, 
Um, I feel like that would change the way that we date if we remembered that every single profile that you see, that you objectify, that you fantasize about, every single one was once a child, a baby, and is still a child, a baby in the eyes of God. I know they're, you know, walking around showing everything or drinking and partying and, and giving themselves away or whatever, but in the eyes of God, they're still toddlers just, you know, making some mistakes, spilling the milk, whatever, like just messing up. But listen, they're still babies in God's eyes. And until you can kind of, uh, access that part of your soul and see people the way God does, we're, we're all at risk of uh, succumbing to that kind of temptation, the, the dehumanization. There's a third risk, a third downside that I'll talk about real quick that comes from that dehumanizing factor of online dating, and that's just the cynicism, this dark cloud of cynicism that has taken over online dating. And single people, y'all are feeling this like crazy, like the, the level of cynicism about, not just about dating, just about humanity has really set in for a lot of people, women especially, but men too. Like, does anything even matter anymore? I mean, I got seven more inappropriate pictures in my inbox today, and these guys I've never met are saying things to me, and these girls or whatever, like, cynicism can take over really, really quickly. One woman in her 20s says, uh, she goes to church here, and we, she was part of this panel that I put together before the series. She said, it feels like you're literally throwing a person away, like they're disposable when you swipe them. And then I start thinking, she said, I start thinking about all the men on their phones right now seeing my face and throwing me away too. And it's so depressing. It's so disheartening the way this world, this online dating world can work. And I wrote um, a couple weeks ago in the first part of the devotionals in the 40 Days of Doubt how we can avoid this kind of cynicism. And one of the things that I talked about in terms of avoiding this cynicism, taking root in your heart, um, was just encouraging people who are dating online to go exclusive sooner and more often with someone that you meet. So uh, I know this sounds a little bit anti everything you've heard about online dating, but this is, this is Pastor Eric's practical tip of the day, all right? Take this from someone who's never dated online in his life. So <laughs> do what you want with it. But I'm telling you, I've got a feeling about this. I've got a feeling about this, and it's rooted in my understanding of Scripture and theology. Go exclusive sooner and more often. Elite Daily will tell you this is bad advice. But listen, guys, let me give you an example. Men, let's say you meet a girl online. Let's say you meet a girl. She's cute. Her name is Kate. And Kate is awesome. And you've got... Already you've got proof of life on Kate. You know she is who she really says she is. She's not some 40-year-old, you know, dude that just wants to see your nudes or whatever. Like Kate's a real girl and she's really cool, right? You've, you've seen her Facebook page. You've got mutual friends. And then you go on dates together and you see some potential in Kate. Guys, that's the moment you stop swiping other girls. That's the moment. When you see a glimpse of potential, when you see a shred of hope that this could be the one, that's the moment you stop swiping other girls. And this is why, look, you go to Kate and you don't expect the same exclusivity from her. You just say, Kate, I see something here. I see some potential and I want to explore this. And I, I think you, Kate, are worth my undivided attention. Guys, I'm telling you, just say that, okay? Just say that. Kate, you are worth my undivided attention. I'm deleting all the apps. You're not gonna see me there anymore. It's cool with me if you go there, but I'm gonna be offline. We're just gonna be texting or whatever until we figure out together whether we have a future or not. 
And if you do, then that's awesome, and you'll know that sooner than you would have if you were saying the same words to six different women at the same time and getting confused about which one's Kate and which, whose mom is from Nevada or whatever. Like, when you just have one in your life, it's much less stress, and you'll know sooner. And then, listen, if it doesn't work out, you also save time. You save heartache. You save Kate some time. And time is more valuable to women in the dating world than it is to men. I'll talk about that another time. But listen, you honor Kate. You don't just honor Kate. You honor the one who made Kate as someone who's worthy of your undivided attention. And even if it doesn't work out, at least you'll know you gave that your best shot. The point of all that is to say that you're going to face in online dating, you've already faced the same kinds of temptations that Jesus faced when he met women who were single and available to him in some form or fashion. You're going to face those, those obstacles, those temptations to take advantage of someone who's maybe vulnerable, to seize the moment with someone who maybe has a past with promiscuity. You can meet your own needs by using someone, using someone's body and disposing of them more or less. And if your relationship with Jesus isn't strong enough to see people the same way he sees them as children, precious children with identity and purpose, with eternity imprinted on their souls, if you can't see that when you look at a profile, then it's time to stop looking at profiles, at least for a season. It's time to delete the apps, get offline, reestablish your connection with Jesus, and work on that relationship first. Because that's the relationship more than any other that you were created for. And if that one's in disarray, none of the other relationships are going to make sense. It's going to be chaos. So disconnect. Take the temptation away. Delete the app, at least for a time, and work on your relationship with Jesus. And if that's the case with you, I'm just gently calling you out. Just like I called porn users out last week. Because some people, frankly, are using Tinder like porn users use porn. And I don't mean just for sex. It's validation. You go for the likes. You go because you find more and more of your identity in how much attention you're getting online. And that's pornographic because it's all about you. And if that's where you are, it's time to repent from that stuff, man, because it's going to kill your soul. It's going to just, every bit of light that shined in you is going to be gone. It's going to be clouded in darkness until you repent from that and turn that around. And you will not turn that around until those apps are off your phone for a while. Until you're just on your knees every day repenting from the way that you've treated people of the opposite sex, people that you've been interested in dating. Until you're on your knees and reading the words of Jesus and how he related to people, learning what it means to see people the way Jesus sees them and sees you. And then maybe at some point, maybe once you see people that way again, maybe when you've reached that point of healing, you can get back in the game. Maybe not. If you're propensed to addiction with this stuff, don't go back to it, but maybe you get back in the game. But today I'm just going to say this and I'll be done. If you have come to that dark, cynical place where you've made the same mistakes again and again with the same person, more or less, like the same kind of person, again and again, on repeat, taking advantage of people, letting them take advantage of you, dehumanizing people, being dehumanized, using them, being used. I'm not going to judge you right now if you just get your phone out right now and just hit that X on Bumble and just break up with Tinder and just swipe left on hand, just get rid of it for a minute. Take a break until the Lord is your vision again, until Jesus is the center of your heart again. I think, I think um, Jesus' buddy John said it right when he said, whoever, whoever says he or she abides in Jesus 
ought to be walking in the same way in which Jesus walked. And that applies to every facet of our lives, including our life in dating, our single life. Let's go to God in prayer together. Lord, thank you for this uh, wake-up call for us. Help us, whether we're single or married or somewhere in between, to see the people that we come across as fully human beings, full of inherent worth and value because they are the products of your hands. They are your children, your babies. Far be it from us to objectify them or take them uh, for granted or take advantage of them, Lord. Forgive us. How dare we do this with your children? Bring us to our knees, Lord. Help us to repent, to turn our lives around so that we can see people for who they are, your children. And Lord, for those who are dealing, struggling, especially with this darkness, with this compulsive behavior in these online dating worlds, God, I just pray that they would see the light again, that they would know that you are merciful and forgiving, and it's never too late to turn it around. Lord, whether we are single or uh, whether we are in a relationship or whether we're married, we are people full of worth, people on a mission to share with the world your light and your life. We pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.